Greetings and salutations, one and all, and welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels, where we're going to talk about movies, and if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cybersecurity stuff. Uh, I am honored today to be joined by my fairly new friend, Mike Brown. Uh, Mike and I, I think we met at uh, either RSA or Black Hat um, last summer. Um, Mike is the president for, of Spinnaker Security LLC. Uh, they are a consulting firm. They provide all kinds of different cybersecurity consulting and crisis management. And welcome, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Look forward to it. Should be fun. Excellent. Yeah, well, let's let's hope so. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it fun. Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, as everyone knows, we always start off with a movie question. Um, you guys, you need to check out Mike's background. I won't go through his whole resume because it is extensive and it'll take the entire uh, session. But Mike has an incredible background, and he's got some really, really cool military and government stuff in there. So, here's the question, Mike: What is your favorite war movie of all time? So I, I think it's um, Midway, which was the, the Midway that was made in 1975, 1976 uh, time frame. Um, it was, it, to my mind, really cool. I was just in the process of applying for the Naval Academy. Um, and I was intrigued by the background of Midway. Um, the fact that uh, here we were uh, several months, six months after uh, Pearl Harbor, and we were on our heels, the United States Navy uh, and the nation. Uh, and and the premise of Midway was based on uh, cryptology, uh, the, the true developed cryptologic capability that the nation um, had built. And, and while it was still nascent, it was the basis for um, determining where the Japanese were going to attack uh, and to help maneuver them into a, a position where we, the United States Navy, could could be effective. Um, and, and we all know how that turned out. We we literally um, emptied the ocean of the threat um, all around Midway, um, which, in my mind, I didn't know this, but uh, roughly seven or eight years later, after being a, after graduating from the Naval Academy, uh, driving ships for three and a half years, I became a cryptologist, um, and it was that was the the beginning of my career and how I actually eventually got into cyber. So, I just think about. Um, I wish I'd have been there um, when at Pearl Harbor, um, and and as the uh, Lieutenant Commander Rochefort was trying to convince uh, Admiral Nimitz that he knew what was going on with respect to the Japanese and everything. It, it's just it's just cool, and and I saw how. Later on, I was able to, to make a difference um, every now and then with our commanders uh, in the United States Navy and the U.S. government. Awesome. Yeah, I, I so I'm, I'm embarrassed. To say I've never seen that one. I've seen the newer version, which I think is more of a romantic movie than yeah. it is actually a, a war movie. Exactly. Um, you know, I my when I was growing up, my dad always said, if if you don't like war movies and you don't like chocolate, you're un-American. So of course that meant that he and I watched uh, a, a lot of war movies together. But I got to tell you, I think my favorite Saving Private Ryan, that movie just blew me away. That opening scene may be one of the most powerful scenes ever ever in a movie. Um, but so let's let's pull on the crypto thread because I also, I mean, I have a couple sure. of things that sort of got me moving in this direction. 
But Bruce Schneier's book on crypto to me was like eye opening. Um, you know, I knew like what this thing was, but just all of the the stuff that went into it and and continues to go into it and the constant racing, right? So that, it's an interesting way that, that that's sort of what you focused on because you're spot on, right? Our ability to break the codes of the Japanese and, and the Germans during the war, that was shifting. And the thing I always find so interesting is there were messages we cracked that we couldn't act on because we right. knew if we did the enemy would know we cracked and they would change the keys and we would be back back, back at scratch. So really, really interesting. Um, so great. So let's, let's talk about something that I know is near and dear to your heart. You know, we spoke before, uh, before we started this and um, I'm going to give you kind of what I'm seeing and then I want to hear your thoughts on it. So we know we've been hearing for years, companies can't find cyber people, right? There are thousands and thousands and thousands of open cybersecurity jobs but if you looked on LinkedIn, and, and I actually also lurk on some subreddits, and um, I will not tell you my, my Reddit name, though, uh, but a lot of cyber people are saying they can't find jobs, right? So on the one side, we have companies who go, we need people. On the other side, you have people go, we need jobs. One would think that that would be two problems that would solve, but we're not yep. seeing that. Right. So I think everyone will be interested to hear your thoughts on on especially the work you're doing with the with the federal government. But uh, generally speaking, how do we fix this problem? Yeah. So f first, let me address what you're seeing, um, which which is reality. Right. Um, we're seeing the, the mix uh, mis mismatch, I should say, between um, the number of jobs that are open, um, the number of people that um, uh, are not qualified for those jobs yet. Those that lose their jobs or are looking for a job can't get in. And I believe that part of the, the mismatch is based on the fact that for years or decades, we've had this gap between um, jobs that were, were required and we didn't have the workforce to meet them. So what industry and, and others have done is sort of change the way they're trying to address that problem, which is through automation or um, a, a combination of automation and outsourcing, which which requires uh, a different skill set and a, a different methodology than um, uh, a company hiring people to do their own organic uh, cybersecurity type of jobs. So when, when I think about the problems of today, I look at a couple of levels. Um, there aren't enough skilled work uh, workers. And the question is, so what is a skilled worker? We don't have true definitions around what is required both internally and externally for an organization to, to be successful, to reduce the risk, and in many cases, comply with regulators. Um, and so that's, that's an issue. So let me let me just jump in there because I think you, you make a really interesting point, right? So I've been in security for 30 years now. When I first started, you could know how to do everything, right? right. You could right. know. You could, you could be an entire program. That is just not true now. And I think you, you hit a really, really interesting point, which is 
what does it mean to be skilled, right? Is it technical skills? Is it soft skills? Is it a combination of, of both? And one thing, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. I've looked at a lot of like master's degrees in cybersecurity. Yep. They all tend to be really, really technical. Yeah. I'm not seeing anything on how to communicate to the board, right? Yeah. How to tell stories, how to, how to, you know, build a true risk management approach. So from an educational perspective, how do we, how do we take, cause clearly there are a bunch of smart people out there. How do we take <coughs> them and skill them up so that they can do the job? Not just, not just be practitioners, but run programs and build and engage and, and be more yeah. risk focused. So that's, what, that's what do you perfect. Think? Uh, and you, you actually hit one of the things that, that, um, I complained about and I'm trying to solve. <laughs> uh, so when I went to DHS um, and and we created a command center uh, for the government and for critical infrastructure, as I was getting reports about activity that was going on, I was getting technical reports. I was getting router number of routers, number of switches or, or whatever in the network at a particular department or agency was down. And I would say, that's great. But what is the operational impact? How are they able to do their mission? Are they able to do their mission? Uh, and so I tried to change it uh, internally. So then we fast forward to I'm in the private sector and I start working with Boston College. And Boston College wanted to do one of those uh, advanced degrees that you talked about. And I said, I'm on board only if it's not uh, found a foundational technical master's program but it is a comprehensive leadership-based program that will talk about um, the legal aspects, the policy aspects. Yes, there's technical. You, you always have to have some of that. But exactly what you were talking about, how do we create a workforce of leaders that are able to communicate up and down military terms, chain of command? Uh, and, and so I have seen the success with Boston College in the Master of Science. Uh, program that they got for cybersecurity because that's what they're delivering. They're delivering people um, in both the public and the private sector that can communicate and put into perspective what the risk and the issues and the potential solutions are. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I, when I was in consulting years ago, I remember I had, I had this one guy who was a great pen tester. Couldn't put him in front of clients, though, because he just had no ability to be a human. He was an amazing pen tester, not a guy I wanted to hang out with because he just was so, so out there. Um, yep. So right before we started, and I, I know we've we've talked before, so you're doing some work now with uh, some folks in the government kind of working on kind of skills development. So share that because I think that's hugely valuable. And I think it's to call it a paradigm shift might be a little hyperbolic, but I do think it's it's a very different way of looking at the human capital problem. So share what, yeah. do, you, what do you do in there and what do you see in the future? Yeah. So um, the way I think about things um, is the way I was brought up in in the Navy and the Defense Department, which is we look at strategic, operational and tactical. Um, and and I don't think you can be successful. Um, we can use business terms and, and a bunch of other things. But if you're not looking at things comprehensively, both for today and the future, then I don't think you can be as successful as you can. So so let me talk about the strategic piece. Um, if we go back all the way to President Bush um, in 2007, um, we tried to address the workforce issues, um, and it was just the beginning. Um, we were more focused, though, on 
sort of like securing our federal government, the dark gov environment. Um, and that, that, was, that, was, that the, was that the DOD training and skills sort of analysis? That was part of it. Um, and we tried to do some things in identifying, uh, like I was talking about earlier, what are the skills that are required? How do those equate into uh, government workforce titles and careers? They didn't. There was no such thing. Uh, and so if right. that was the beginning. Under President Obama, probably around um, in his second term, 2014, 2015, we got the Department of Edingy, I mean, Education involved to um, help to really articulate those type of um, workforce skills and jobs, both in the public and the private sector. And if we fast forward, well, maybe not fast forward, if we go to last year. Yeah, not, not, uh, the government doesn't do fast forward. They do right. slow forward. <laughs> exactly. And I also always say there's no government. There's multiple governments. So you have to figure out, you know, what's going on at the national level. But um, and this is how we connect um, what I would say the uh, strategic to the operational. The Office of National Cyber Director was finally established inside the White House um, with a Senate-confirmed individual, Chris Inglis, who is a phenomenal person mm -hmm. and a personal friend of mine for decades, um, as the first uh, person. And his office uh, decided to tackle this question. What do we need? What? Um, and obviously, if we're a national effort, it needs a strategy. And so the Office of National Cyber Directorate um, cr created a strategy, which we hope to be publicly released um, in detail. And, and at the RSA conference, it will be discussed. Um, and what we did was um, invited the folks up to Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to see what we were doing there. And, and when we briefed them last summer through the Massachusetts Cyber Center, Stephanie Helm, um, we were we had an idea and an approval from Governor Baker as to what to do, um, but we're now doing it in the Commonwealth. Uh, we've created the Massachusetts Cyber Trust, which is connecting academic institutions. So going back to the opener, opening that you had with respect to the workforce, what are, what are the students? Where are the students? What do they need to know? Um, how do they need to uh, use that information, that knowledge? So we connect that the stu students in the schools with real capability, building out uh, security operations center and cyber ranges to get hands-on experience with experienced people in organizations. And now, the these, are these end, people that already have IT backgrounds or are you just throwing them right in the security pond? It, it's whoever wants to be a cybersecurity professional or get that level of experience at the colleges. Now, part of what the colleges are doing is they're changing their courses based on what is required in the real world to help bring really now skilled graduates. So they not only would they be receiving the academic qualifications, by working um, real time, they'll be getting the experience. And then this is how we connect it. You've got industry at the back end that are looking for skilled people, they're identifying the types of people that they need uh, and, and working that. So I think that was um, when we discussed that with uh, the Office of National Cyber Director and saw that we were doing it, that's real life, right? Uh, I, I love education, but I think there's a, a real difference between theory and practice. Got to have both. 
Oh get my God, as a hiring manager, level. as a hiring manager in my past life, I can't even tell you how much I agree with that. We would hire people with certifications and you put them in front of a computer and they go, I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so that's part of what yeah, I think very is very frustrating. So, um, yeah. And getting that strategy out um, will, will, I think, help again, um, reduce the gap, the mismatch between um, the jobs that are opening, the skills that are required, and um, who who's actually hiring and for what. Okay, how long do you think it's going to take? We've been. This is not a new problem, right? We talk in two years, five years, ten years. So um, I think, th- as important as that is, um, any strategy takes multiple years um, for that to to be executed. So let's say three to five. But that's not good enough. We've got to realize that everybody doesn't need to have a bachelor's, a master's, or a doctorate. Um, So how do we quantify the skills that individuals already bring to to the table? That could be through experience that they've had. Um, It could be through phenomenal vocational technical high schools um, and and internships that they've had. there's another element that's going on inside the Massachusetts area where we're, we're looking at connecting the dots with um, uh, skills and then giving them a little bit of education and training to meet the requirements of, of industry partners that are looking for um, folks. I think that's going to take a lot longer, right? You know, back in my in government time, you know, I had a requirement if I had a job opening. It said bachelor's degree or master's degree, and it didn't matter how skilled that individual that I wanted to hire, if that wasn't met or other certifications that may be completely irrelevant to the job that we were looking for, um, I couldn't hire them. And and that's bureaucracy and culture. You know what my my son my son's currently looking my son's currently looking for a job and um he was in the final stages with uh, a consultant that services the federal government and there was a requirement in the job description that came from the government you got to have two years experience in Fortune 500 they wanted to hire him and they yeah. couldn't so yeah, yeah very yeah. you know in my previous role at Gartner uh, I used to review a lot of job descriptions and I would end up chucking half of the stuff in there you know what desired not required certifications right. just you're spot on right I think that what happens in a lot of cases is the people that are creating these job descriptions they see a bunch of siloed things right and they don't yeah. ever think about how these things are all brought together. When I was hiring people, I was a big fan. Show me you can solve problems and you can navigate the crisis and you can help build consensus. I can teach you all the technical stuff, but it's much harder right. to teach that the the softer skills. So, all right. So, so we're still a couple of years out, I think, before we see some, some significant progress. Um, so let me, let me ask you a slightly different but related question. So I think we can agree that there are some economic things, changes coming. Uh, I know nobody wants to use the R word just yet, but what we've been hearing is security, people laying their security teams off. Yep. Why are they doing this? So, so, um, and and I have this conversation with uh, friends, family members who happen to be 
chief information security officers. Um, you know, it starts with, with what you mentioned. It's about the dollar. And for security, um, it's not a, it's usually not a revenue generator. Um, it is a sunk cost for an organization. Uh, and, and what I try, and so that's what you see happening. The, the uh, organizations are making the decision that they will accept the risk around potential um, bad activity occurring and the implications to their business that that is more acceptable than doing something else. And so what I try to get companies to understand is that um, they should use security um, as a revenue generator. And, and they go, well, how are you going to do that? Um, it's a manpower and, and technology uh, expense. You can't generate revenue. And I said, well, it's about competition. If you're able to deliver greater capability um, at, at a more secure environment, that you can demonstrate that you're, you are, in fact, compliant with whatever it is um, and, and <clears throat> take care of uh, privacy data, that is a revenue generator. It also may be um, a backstop against losing revenue, which we've seen corporations, because of the harm to their reputation, suffer. And so it goes back to what you were talking about again, right? You've got to have the security organization, and if they're working for the chief risk officer or the CIO or the COO or whoever they're working for, you have to clearly communicate that this is not just about uh, sunk costs. It's about how we will address um, not just the business risk, but make the business more profitable by doing X, Y, and Z. And that's not easy. I, I love that. Yeah, I, well, I'll tell you, when, when I was at Gartner, I used to review a lot of people's risk registers and I would help them with their strategic reporting. And I always said, look, we need to move away from always saying, well, if we don't manage this risk, here's all the bad stuff that'll happen, right? Let's try right. to look at some of those and say, hey, you know, if we do a better job managing our identity and access management, we can onboard our customers more rapidly. If we do a better job on business continuity and disaster recovery, we will have less impact. So I, I love the, the sort of value prop. And I mean, I share this with people all the time. When you're going to your business executives, they care about three things, money coming in, money going out. If something goes sideways, who's getting in trouble? And we yeah. need to build off those three things. And, and I mean, you know, you with your public sector background, it's not necessarily money coming in, but in that case, it's revenue generated. It's, it's um, a reputation. It's, you know, achieving yep. mission objectives. You know, you talked about that earlier. That's one of the things I loved about RMF when it came out. Unfortunately, it has not been implemented the way I had hoped, but yep. you know, it's about achieving mission objectives. Well, what's a mission objective? It's a business goal, right? right. Very simply yep. put, and, and you and I obviously know Tony Manel, uh, who's yep. one of my colleagues at Black Kite. He and I have conversations all the time. How do we how do we engage with people that don't care about profit? How do we engage with people that are, you know, in the public sector and essentially no competition, right? If you if you want the army to come take you, you you don't really have any options. You got the army, right? So yeah. so I love I love that that take on it though, which is try to think about how to you know, reference it as a, as a revenue generator. And I think sometimes even if you don't get there, you can have better conversations. Uh, right. I think that that's, think exactly that's important. Right, right? Yeah, you you want to have you want to start that conversation. So um, 
uh, having been an executive in the private sector and and briefed boards and, and now on boards, I I ask the questions or have the conversations around what are the what's the market we're going after, uh, and then that's how I help to to communicate that our market can actually be expanded if we are smart around how we apply security and, and other aspects inside our business. So for instance, um, being able to do certain things, you can actually expand the TAM, right? You can, you can look at the total available market in a different way. You now have great opportunity in this area because um, not only are you competitive, you're meeting um, the specific requirements the, with the emphasis on supply chain risk management that is, exists in the public and private sector. You can connect the dots there. And so after the conversation is over, at least people are thinking about, well, maybe we need to in, uh, not cut, hopefully invest in security. Yeah, I, I do think that so I've been I've been doing this for a while and this I think is my fifth economic downturn. And um I feel like everyone we get a little bit better about not cutting things that are in the risk the the risk domain. So um so so you just you just talked about supply chain and I think that's an interesting thing. One of the things I've been trying to get people to understand is we have these three different things, right? We have third-party risk management, we have vendor risk management, we have supply chain risk management. And yes, they're not exactly the same, but at the end of the day, they are very simply risks that you as an organization have because of people you do business with, right? right? And I think the the struggle, and one of the things too, we, we talk to people all the time who don't have traditional supply chain, right? They're not manufacturing things, but you know what? They have information supply chain, they have application supply chain, they have data supply chain, and as more and more stuff goes into the cloud, that becomes more of an issue. So in your, like when you're talking with your, your clients, um, do they understand that cyber has... A, an outsized impact, right? I think people look yeah. at the number of zeros and go, well, the fine will be 50 bucks. But that's true. But if your biggest partner gets hit with ransomware and they're down for a week, how long are you impacted for? And the answer is always longer than a week. Right. Right. So, yeah, so think, what are you hearing from your customers there? So I think there's a couple of things, right? Uh, and, and actually, I go back to President Bush again when he signed the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. It had 12 strategic initiatives one of which was about supply chain. We failed. I, I mean, I was in the, I was co-leader uh, from a DHS perspective with DOD. The reason we failed was we didn't have visibility. We didn't understand what we had, let alone right. um, be able to communicate what the supply chain should be um, providing uh, and looking for. If we fast forward now to where we are, um, there's a lot better visibility. Um, and, and what I see is organizations, companies are asking the question. They're not, again, I go back to strategic operational tactical. They're not tactical questions. They're very strategic. You know, what countries should be, we be concerned about doing business in or with? Um, and, and what you try to do is drive down the conversation. So it's about where is workforce or technology developed and, and who do you partner with? How do you how do you um, look at things? You know, you mentioned Tony uh, Manella Blackkite. That's part of what I've been helping him with um, communicate that 
part of of the requirements in the public and private sector is continuous monitoring and a real understanding and prioritization of the risks associated with the supply chain. Um, and so I see um, more capability uh, and capacity in today today's environment, but it hasn't been solved. Uh, and, and you see a lot of activity combining public-private partnership around um, supply chain risk management uh, and uh, ransomware. Both have task force at the national level that are trying to figure out how to, how to actually communicate a strategy. Um, yeah. Again, at the national, it's, uh, go ahead. You know, okay. Yeah. Right. You see, it's, so, I mean, we, we, we have a, go, I'm go, you go, you're my guest. <laughs> sorry. Right, sorry. It's, it's one last thing. Um, I, I've mentioned the office of national cyber director. There is a national cybersecurity strategy that is, um, in its final stages and should be released relatively shortly. The reason that's important is it's taken together. Where is that coming out of? What what agency? Uh, What agency is that coming out of? White House. So the Office of National Cyber Director, um, underneath the so directly uh, from White House. Yep. So so they've taken all the input from public and private sector, um, and are going to communicate a strategy, which is really important. You know, what do you take from the strategy? You start to the the plan of action and milestones on how to execute. Um, to deliver capability against that. But it's important that that we get that out there. There's a lot of questions. What are we supposed to do? Why are we, do, why are we supposed to do that? Oh, how are we going to do that? Uh, and that's in both the public and the private sector. Um, so I think that, that that will be an important um, item, element uh, for the nation to help figure out what's the next step, um, which should be addressing uh, supply chain risk management. What does that mean? How, how do you do it? Why do you do it? As well as the ransomware threat. And and I'm completely in agreement with you. There is no real understanding of the implication. I talk about business risk all the time. The implications of a ransomware attack against an organization that is in your supply chain, whether you're public sector or private sector. And that's why it's so important to understand the risk and to have visibility, continuous visibility around that. Yeah, no, I, they, those are all great points, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that work from from that uh, that agency. You know, one of the things I just want to talk about. So we, so I have a, a friend of mine. She's the CISO for a big manufacturing company. I won't get specific, but she said, "Look, we have four different factories in China that manufacture product for us. Each one of those factories has three different trucking companies they use." Those trucking companies go to six different ports. They use three different shipping lines to go across the ocean. They land in four different ports in the U.S., and then there are four different trucking companies. And that, like, well, how do you even figure that out, right? It's like this crazy interactive thing. And what we were trying to help her with, and I don't know that we quite got there, but say, look, you know what? Of all these elements, these four right here, their cyber posture sucks. You right. might want to try to at least get rid of them, which is it going to get rid of your risk? No. Is it going to solve the problem? No. But at least it kind of raises the bar a little bit. And and I think that people aren't necessarily thinking about it that way. I mean, I, I talked to a guy. Uh, he was a prospect for, for Black Kite. 
And he said something to me, which I was shocked. He said, look, I've worked in a bunch of third-party risk teams, and I've never, ever seen them have any impact on a business. And I kind of went, you know, I got to be honest with you, that has not been my experience. I have frequently seen third-party risk teams go, no, you, this needs to be fixed. And, you know, we do a lot of work with shared assessments as an example, and actually just went through training a couple weeks ago. And there's all kinds of stuff there, contractual requirements. And, and, and I think, to your point, we're still working through the problem. Well, contracts are not up for negotiation all the time. So we go, okay, so here's what's going to be in the next set of contracts. And we saw this with cybersecurity, you know, five years ago, third-party risk management was quite simple. Was legal okay with the contract? And did finance think they were going to be in business? Okay, let's sign off. But there's so much more, so much more complexity uh, to to the problem. So so let me let me kind of circle back to what we started with, which was the human capital issue, right? So we're training people. There's a lot of of capability. You mentioned the Boston College program, uh, and, and there are other ones out there as well. The question, though, is we're teaching people and training people to solve the problems we had. What about the problems we're going to have, to your point, right? Some of this supply chain stuff is getting more and more problematic. And one last thing, and then I'll let you talk. We've heard that in the cloud in particular, there's a lot of consolidation going on. Well, that means that people are not going to be able to deal with concentration risk because they're not going to have any choices. So what what do you see? So I think it's a two-part question. How do we train people for problems that are not even real problems yet? And what do we do about this whole concentration risk issue? So on on the last part, on the concentration risk, um, one of the things that we were working uh, very hard on in the public and private sector was that um, contrary to what original belief was, working in the cloud, security in the cloud was better than enterprise security or or other aspects of it. It's not solved, it's not perfect, but the starting um, posture was more secure. So the, the idea was, how do you come up with the right requirements and, and capabilities to continually upgrade the security, which will then help on um, the, the concentration issue? Um, I think, though, also, if you've seen what the U.S. government's done, like the Defense Department, where they wanted to have a single cloud provider, they decided, no, we actually have to have multiple clouds. That would be an awful idea. (laughs) Yeah. So so now that makes sense. On the first piece, training, how do we think about um, taking and solving today's problems uh, and applying it to the future? But I like to say, I always am a firm believer in education and training. Got to have both. And and so when I think about education, it's about how do we create and support people to innovate and think. And that's why I was interested in that Boston College program. Um, when, and so you've got to have a mix of doers and thinkers. And going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, how do they communicate together? How do they they take things? I used to take briefings and I'd be told the problem. Uh, and 
And, and they would say, what would you, i.e. me, like me to do? And I go, think. How would you address? What are we trying to solve? I tried to, um, using a leadership principle that, that I learned from my dad, I try to coach them uh, and get them to, to think. Um, and if you, if you find the people that are able to do that, then, then regardless of the situation, they will start to address it or proactively think about a product um, line what they need to include because of what could possibly happen and so on. So it's, it's not easy, but having the right combination of training and education and in an ecosystem, a workforce that, that is complementary, those are the organizations I think will be and are successful. Great. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, I love that, that differentiation between training and, and education. And, and I, I love your dad. Um, my yeah. dad raised me that way as well. And I'm always a big fan of, well, you hit on something, which I think is cool. People tend to think they understand a problem and then they tell you, well, can you, I had this conversation with my daughter yesterday. She said, I need to understand this. And I said, well, why? Cause I do. Well, why though? Like you have to push back and you have to kind of go upstream. Right. And when she told me, I went, Oh, okay. Well here, I think sometimes people think they know the answer and there are other ways and they don't actually define the problems all that yeah. well. You so, know, all right. That's awesome. That's so, really uh, interesting because this morning I was listening to an interview on CNBC um, with Bob Iger, um, Disney chairman, mm -hmm. right? He came on board. And at the end, the question was, uh, when you left the last time, you said it was because you weren't listening. Um, and he explained he had so much experience of based on the past that when he sat down, eventually he decided he figured out that he was cutting off innovation. He was cutting off. These are my words. He was cutting off innovation. He was cutting off. Um, his people's ability to think and potentially provide solutions that to problems that didn't necessarily exist. And that's the biggest takeaway that he had. And I think that that's the biggest problem we have with leaders. Um, I know I had that problem, right? You, you think you've seen it a hundred times. You did the same thing for a hundred times. What could possibly change? I think it's called the world. So we got we to be able to adapt. <laughs> Well, you know what they say, right? You you want to make you want to make God laugh. Tell them what your plans are, and and I think I think that's a great note to close on because I think you are one hundred percent correct. I always talk about well, we have to stop doing things because we've always done them that way, and I think your the way you interpreted what what Iger said, I think is spot on, right? Yeah. Um, we think we know and we don't listen. Why do right. we hire all these smart people if we're not going to listen to what they tell us? And and I think that is absolutely, absolutely spot on. So, all right, Mike, this was awesome. I had a, a great time. So let me just kind of recap some of the, the key points. So favorite military movie, Midway. Totally got to check that one out. My daughter and I are on a movie kick, so we'll download that. You're a big fan of crypto. Me too. I love math. We, we had an internal call this morning 
and talking about math and everybody was like, Oh, I hate math. I'm like, I love math. I think math is beautiful. And they, I thought they were going to fire me. So, so that's a, a good thing. Um, we got to focus more on soft skills and I could not agree with you more. Um, and then one thing I, I love the way you break down sort of strategic versus operational versus tactical. I think a lot of people talk about strategery is as, as uh, my buddy, Matt Stamper and I used to say, and tactics, but the operational is that I think that's the connection. And I, love that so that that was awesome um so i'm i'm looking forward to our continued work uh uh going forward uh at black kite and i want to thank you for for joining us uh this has been another episode of risk and reels i am your host jeffrey wheatman stay safe stay healthy stay secure wheatman out Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.